Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. Uh, the intro never gets old. I love that guitar music, and that means that it's time to record another episode of Red Rock Relationships. And I'm your host, of course. Uh, I'm happy to be here again. And we have another uh, really interesting guest today here. Um, this isn't exactly a two-parter. This isn't going to be a direct follow-up of our last episode, but... For those of you all who listened to our last episode, uh, we talked a lot about emotions. We talked a lot about emotional contagion, and we talked about it a lot in the context of conflict. And so today we're going to spend some time unpacking conflict, and we're going to look at one really specific kind of conflict. It's a particularly brutal kind of conflict, and in order to do that, I have my guest here to help me out with that, who I would consider a very, very high expert in that particular area. We have soon to be Dr. Rob Matheny. Rob, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's so great to be invited to this. Yeah, we have fun on this uh, on this podcast. And uh, and today is going to be more of the same. We're probably going to talk about some stickier situations than we normally do. But I think that what we're going to see is with things like the election coming up, that what we talk about today is going to be extremely relevant for people looking to manage their relationships in a time of quite frankly, political chaos. Ugh. Don't like that at all. Yeah, it's a pretty intense time. I see a lot of people defriending uh, family members and friends on Facebook. A lot of people ending relationships because of the disagreements that they're having politically, which mm. is not something that we used to see before. Yeah, and it's been, it's been, the divide has been growing wider and wider, and we'll get to that, but, uh, uh, let's let's first start off by doing what we always do every episode. I want to learn a little bit about you and who you are, and I know your your life because you know I would consider you a good friend of mine, and I'm always shocked to hear your credentials as you repeat them over and over again. So why don't you just take a second and let our listeners know where you came from and how you got to looking at conflict? Ah, uh, yeah, thanks. So I think looking at conflict they, I, that started because they say. <laughs> oh no. Oh, it looks like we've got connectivity issues for the second week in a row, but here we go. There we go. Okay. Coming back. All right. So one more time. Where are we at? Do I need to keep going? Just start over. Okay. Um, so yeah, my, uh, they say research what you know. So that's how I came to conflict. Um, my background, um, my first degree is in theology and I was a pastor for several years. I uh, did a lot of work in uh, inner cities in, in Chicago and in Arizona, and then eventually went uh, back to grad school and became a therapist, clinical therapist. And I worked with domestic violence, uh, court ordered domestic violence perpetrators, people with uh, severe mental illnesses, Boy, oh boy. So Rob's out in Michigan, and it looks like the internet out in Michigan is painful right now. Yes. Oh, man. It's all Can right. Start over no, 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 no. Keep going. We got, we got where you were at, um, went back to grad school, and now... Yeah. <laughs> I went, to, went back to grad school and became a clinical therapist, um, and I worked with uh, 
court order domestic violence perpetrators, uh, worked with people with severely mental illness uh, who um, were ha- experiencing a lot of conflict, and also uh, with people who were recovering from addiction. Mm. Um, and I started seeing a lot of patterns there. And then in that process, I myself started rethinking a lot of things about my own identity, um, and I uh, ended up coming out. Um, which put my religious identity um, and my uh, sexual identity at odds with each other, mm. um, especially in close relationships. I come from a very conservative family um, mm. who has a certain view of sex and sexuality uh, that is not inclusive of the LB- LGBTQ community. And so in their minds, I needed to give up one identity or the other. Mm. I needed to either be a Christian or I needed to be gay, or but I couldn't be both in their minds. And so there's sure. this unresolvable conflict in that. And, so I ended up going back to school. That seems to be my answer to solve problems. <laughs> uh, going back to school and uh, working on my PhD in interpersonal uh, communication, and my focus is on conflict. And in particular, I was interested in those conflicts with people that you either want to, you ought to, or you have to maintain a relationship with them. Um, and yet, there's this irre- unresolvable tension between the two of you. And yeah. so, what are you going to do? Um, and I, for me, it wasn't good enough just to say, well, that's just how it is. Yeah. So that's how I came to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a whole slew of, of research programs that have looked at conflict, but, um, for the folks at home, I want to spend a little bit of time discussing how conflict looks in close relationships. When I teach a class on conflict, one of the things that I repeat to my students over and over again, and one thing that I'm repeating this semester because I'm teaching that course, is that one, conflict is inevitable. We always encounter Mm -hmm. it. Two, it's dynamic. It's constantly changing itself and it changes us as people. Um, And three, the more interdependent we are, the more that our goals intermesh with another person's goals, the more salient a given conflict episode becomes. So I want to take a little bit of time staying in that vein. I'm wondering if you can think of any um, you know, myths or common misconceptions as it relates to conflict and close relationships that you would just like love to get off your chest and let people know aren't what they seem. Yeah, I think the primary one would be that conflict is bad um, and that conflict has to be destructive. Um, And I don't in in my research and in my personal experiences, I don't believe that at all. Um, Conflict can be very constructive in a relationship. Um, Conflict can be the the open door, the opportunity to explore new new places in your relationship and to take you to new depths of intimacy and new depths of trust. Um, But because we we often are conflict averse um, and we use avoidant behaviors when it comes to conflict or dominant behaviors when it comes to conflict, we tend to experience conflict emotionally as a negative experience. And if I could uh, teach people in close relationships anything, it would be that that lesson right there. Conflict does not have to be destructive. It can be very constructive in a relationship. Yeah, I think... um... You know, I think that there's a lot of research there that supports that. And so then, of course, the question becomes, how do we find ourselves in this situation where in 2020, when we look at re- these really interdependent relationships, I want to, if it's okay with you, I want to focus on fam- familial relationships, not just because we're sure. going to be talking about families in our next episode, but also because when it comes to intractable conflict, these are people that we're normally tethered to. So kind of mm-hmm. like you said, you want, you ought, or you should be seeing these people regularly like that's i think of you know 
parents, siblings, um, you know, everybody makes the, uh, the, the analogy about the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving mm -hmm. dinner or, or whatever the case is. Um, so I, I want to stay in the family if that's okay. And then if there's time we can talk about like maybe more, you know, um, intimate, um, romantic style relationships, but I was just doing a little research for this episode. Specifically, I wanted to look at some of the effects that um, a current um, intractable conflict has on relationships. So before we get into the numbers that I looked up, do you think you can take a moment and define that word intractable conflict? What does it mean and how is it special and different from other forms of conflict? Yeah, so when we're talking about intractable conflict from a research perspective, usually we are talking about um, not uh, close relationships. So communication scholars tend to differentiate between conflict that happens in close interpersonal relationships versus at the societal level. Mm -hmm. And that word intractable um, is the word that we use for conflict um, at the societal level that is, um, it's pervasive, um, it's Un, it's complicated. It's an entangled mess. It's not going to go away. A good example of that would be if you think about a lot of conflict in the Middle East. So mm -hmm. Israel's conflict over land and, and uh, with uh, the Palestinians and how complicated and meshed and how long that's been going on. Mm -hmm. and, and a big feature of that kind of conflict is that oftentimes the cost of resolving the conflict is is greater than the cost of of ending it. So, again, that if you think about that Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for that to come to a place of resolution right now, based on their two different perspectives, one one body has to dominate the other. Yeah. And so the cost of that kind of resolution is unacceptable to to both sides of uh, of that conflict. Um, but what happens is is that kind of conflict now can impute itself into personal relationships. So when we're talking about personal relationships, then we often use the words like serial arguments. Mm. Um, so serial arguments are arguments that come up again and again and again, and and they never get resolved. Maybe at some point we just say, oh, I'll just agree to disagree uh, for right now. Or um, the, the argument heats up and we have an episode of, of arguing, but it doesn't really get resolved or the resolution that we come to, I'm not really committed to or bought into, but I, you know, I kind of give, uh, face to that. I give lip service to, yeah, okay, we can end it there. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then it, it, it slows down, it cools down and maybe we don't talk about it again for a while, but something will trigger it again. And we have that same argument the next time around. Mm -hmm. And it just seems to keep happening. Um, and so a lot of my research though, started to connect these two things. When does that intractable conflict that's having at that societal level become the trigger for those serial arguments in close relationships? Yeah, yeah, and I think that you make a couple of really important points that are worth repeating. Like, first of all, this is a meshing between society and individual relationships, and that's part of what makes it so complicated. And I think the second big thing that you sort of alluded to but didn't explicitly state is that often when we have these conflicts, they are directly tied to who we perceive ourselves to be, our identity, yes. our, 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 val our very most values, our most core basic values, as opposed to uh, getting into an argument about uh, what's for dinner on Sunday or getting into an argument about, you know, my, I've, I've got a messy roommate, right? That's not necessarily an intractable conflict. But for Absolutely. example, 
And, and you know, we're going to absolutely have to take it here. If you consider the current political situation with the upcoming presidential election, I mean, pick a, a topic. They've all become entrenched and enmeshed and tied to people's identities. So um, absolutely. I have a hypothesis on why this might be, and it's nested in some interesting research. So Pew Research tells us um, when they interview people, only 2% of Trump supporters and only 3% of Joe Biden supporters report that there's nobody in their circle of friends who shares their view, which means that folks are usually approaching people with whom they share similar perspectives with. Mm -hmm. Same study, 75% of Democrats believe that the quote unquote other side is closed minded. 63% mm -hmm. of Republicans believe that Democrats are quote unquote unpatriotic. These are like mm -hmm. really big, heavy words. And now imagine sitting someone down who may, maybe doesn't even identify as a Democrat, but is you know planning on voting for Joe Biden, sitting that person down in the same room with someone who is planning on voting for Donald Trump. Odds are person number one believes person number two is closed-minded and person number two believes that person number one is unpatriotic. So Absolutely. how in the world can we get two people who are carrying that mentality, who are about to talk about something like the fate of the nation, how do we get them to exchange words in a manner that just doesn't explode and blow up all over the place? Yeah, so you hit on a really good point around identity, and this is actually where a lot of my research has has focused in thinking about how does this intractable social conflict get into uh, into cl close interpersonal serial arguments, and it is through this mechanism of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is is because um, if I believe that the issue of my identity is at stake in this argument then I am going to be so invested, over-invested in the outcome of, of this argument because for me to lose this argument is to lose uh, viability uh, for my existence. It's to lose legitimacy. It's to lose uh, autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of, all of those feelings, those strike at the core of how we feel about ourselves um, and how we feel about the other people. And so our identities become securitized. It's this conflict now is uh, poses an existential threat to my existence. Um, it poses an existential threat uh, for my ability to form, to live into my identity, my ability to access even uh, potentially uh, systems that support the achievement or the mm -hmm. building of that identity. And when that's the case, you know, I I'm going to fight like hell. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's wild is uh, staying within the vein of family. I I'm looking at numbers from 2016 here on my little note sheet. In 2016, 37% of families had reported increased tension due to the presidential campaign, specifically due to the Trump campaign. Now, that was four years ago. Imagine the percentage of families that have been now accumulated. I mean, there's no way that it's under 50%. It's probably over 60, maybe even close to 70% of families have, who have experienced tension because of the situation involving um, Donald Trump, be you for him or against him. And unfortunately, a lot of these party lines are drawn by age. We see age being one of the big predicting factors in terms of how people vote. Um, the, the Pew Research that I uh, cited before showed that uh, adults 18 through 29, 68% of them are planning on voting for Joe Biden. Uh, 
52% of people um, 50 or older are planning on voting for Trump. To me, as I visualize those numbers, what I see is a college student or college students getting into arguments with their parents, getting into arguments mm -hmm. with their late Gen X, early boomer parents. So we've got Gen Z and millennials versus Gen X and boomers. And unfortunately, I mean, the numbers bore out that, that that's how we're drawing conflict. So my question to you is, is there a way that we can help people to either have these conversations or, um, I don't like to use the word avoid when it comes to conflict, but can we put them in a position where if the conversation cannot be had, can we put them in a space where they feel like opinions can be shared without um, identity being attacked? I think there's a way, but you have to have some some agreements on the front end between between yourself and the person that you're talking with. And often, oftentimes, when we're getting into these conversations, those agreements aren't in place. This is happening around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Uh, you know, this is happening over dinner or mm -hmm. uh, some other family event, and and the conversation just sort of emerges because we're topic talking about. Um, something that happened in the news, right? Um, and we don't agree with that. So I think one of the things that I often come back to is what is effective? How do I behave effectively in this conversation? And I define behaving effectively as behaving in a goal-directed way. Mm -hmm. So I have to first ask myself, what is my goal in this conversation? In any interpersonal interaction, there's basically three buckets of goals that you can you can possibly have. You can have either a self-respect goal. So I want to I want to um, by the end of this, feel good that I've lived into my values, that I've upheld my identity, um, that I feel good about the way that I presented myself and I held my boundaries strong. Mm. So you can have a self-respect goal. You can have a relational goal. So at the end of this, um, how do I want this? Per how do I want to feel about this relationship or how do I want the other person to feel about this relationship? You know, do I want to increase the closeness or decrease the closeness? Do I want to end the relationship? Um, some kind of relational goal, or you can have a functional goal. What do I need to get this person to do? Or what do I need to accomplish mm -hmm. uh, in this process? And the reality is, is that in any given interaction, you can always behave towards at least one of those goals. Sometimes you can behave towards two of them. It's rare that you can behave towards three of them at the same time. It's very, very difficult. very difficult to do. And so when you get into those conversations, I often will first back up and say, what, do, what is my goal in this conversation? Is my purpose as I'm sitting here around the dinner table, am I here to, to uh, attend to the relationship? Am I here to attend to my own values? Mm -hmm. Am I here to attend to some sort of function? And and oftentimes you've got it. You have to make a choice and prioritize. So if I if I choose, you know, at the end of this, I want to maintain the relationship. Then I'm probably going to soften my messages. I'm probably going to say maybe not go into those those identity arguments. Uh, I may choose not to show up for them. So if the opportunity presents itself, and I have said this at times, you know what? Uh, so and so that's a really important topic and it's so close to my identity um, that I feel I have a lot of strong feelings about that and I don't think that we have the psychological safety right now um, or the agreements in place for us to talk about that well mm. and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say we probably shouldn't um, yeah you know and and being able to to decide for yourself um, when you want to show up for something and when you don't is important we have agency 
and we don't have to engage those conversations. So if it's my, if it's I have a relational goal in mind, I'm I'm in this moment to attend to the relationship. Then I and I know that that this conversation just isn't going to be set up for success. Then I'm going to set that boundary. Yeah. But maybe I'm in, I'm in a different moment, and I say, you know, it really is about my self-respect. It's about my values in this moment. That's what I'm going to prioritize. Then I'm going to be okay with saying, you know, we can talk about that, but you may feel differently about me at the end of this conversation, or I may feel differently about you, and we that may have some implications on our relationship. Yeah. And it right now it feels more important to get through this conversation because my values um, and the way I'm showing up in the world um, are more important, or a boundary that I need to set around this issue is more important than me maintaining uh, that positive emotion right. with you right now. And so I think it comes down to deciding what's your goal in advance. And uh, then yeah. always behaving towards that goal. Yeah, I love that. And I love that. I love the magic number of three. So, you know, making those decisions can be really meaningful. And then I also like the idea of giving really explicit sentences and instructions like you just suggested, letting people know we can talk about this. We might think about each other differently at the end. And then what that allows for is a pause and for people to assess, hey, is this conversation really truly worth having right now or should we save it for another time? Or should mm -hmm. we instead turn to something that we agree on? I always opt for, um, I look for excuses when I get into very charged conversations like this. I look for an excuse to say, that's a good point. Yeah. And for every time I say that's a good point, I feel like I'm fulfilling that relational goal. Like, hey, I still, Absolutely. you know, I, I'm not completely out of line with everything that you say. We do have commonalities. And so I think starting at the commonalities, um, because especially if you talk about something like the presidential election, most people, the, the large majority of people are interested in voting for a person because they care about the country and they believe that person will make the country better. And so that's right. usually a good place to start. And then you can talk about methods for making that, right. for making that situation right. better. Absolutely. Be, what you're talking about is the ability to validate someone. Mm -hmm. And I can validate someone even if I don't agree with them. Because when I'm validating them, all I'm saying is from your perspective, from the information that you have in hand and from, from where you sit, how you feel or think about this issue is real, it's important, and from behind your lens it makes sense. It doesn't mean I agree with your lens, but mm -hmm. from behind your lens, it makes sense. And I look for the kernel of truth that I can validate, that I can say, yep, I can get behind that. Yeah. So one of the, one of the common arguments right now um, is around, uh, in the election, is around abortion. Even the the whole issue with the Supreme uh, the Supreme Court is, is many conservative voters want uh, to get a judge on the Supreme Court who will um, overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And, and they call themselves pro-lifers, right? Well, what are we saying when we say that? If somebody says, well, I want to vote for Donald Trump because I believe he's going to put a conservative judge on the bench, uh, and that's important to me because I'm a pro-life person. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? I can affirm the value of life. Yeah. And I, true, uh, am a pro-life person. I reject the notion that that means being anti-legal abortion. But let me let me get at and you and I both want to affirm life wherever we see it. And we agree there the implications and how we go about that are gonna be different. Yeah. And we can we can argue about the tactics or the details, but I can affirm you in that value. And Rob, I've seen you do that on on social media. I've seen you craft that exact argument. So I know you're not just blowing smoke right now. I know that you really do quite literally practice what you preach. Um, in our final minute here, I want to just touch on one quick question that's going to be a prelude to next episode. Do you see any hope for a romantic relationship 
that's experiencing this very specific intractable conflict? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it comes down to the ability to practice um, psychological flexibility, um, which is there's a lot of research coming out uh, of mindfulness practices um, and how we can bring mindfulness even into communication. Mm. And if your listeners are interested, I would point them toward a book uh, what by called Pro-Social, which gets at even some uh, of the Nobel Prize winning economics behind um, the ways that people can cooperate and build build connection in small groups, even when there are differing or competing priorities. Um, and psychological flexibility is a piece uh, is a big piece of that. And they touch on that. So I'd refer your listeners there as a good primer. Great. Well, that's some awesome advice, and we're going to be expounding upon uh, what happens when we experience these very rough conflicts with our partners. But thanks so much, Rob, for getting on with us. Thank you. It's great. Yeah, remember, we're on Spotify, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and all that good stuff. So please do smash that subscribe button. Give us a listen. And of course, we're on Radio Dixie. Thanks so much for giving you You've our time. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication. This has been a production from A Podcast Studio.